Hi, Mark Middleton along with Bill Schaefer, and this is Growing Bolder. And if you believe like we do that the best is still ahead, you've come to the right place for hope, inspiration, and possibility. All right, Mark, I just came from the parking lot. Every one of our guests are all lined up, ready to deliver, and they are not going to disappoint. Coming up a little later, we will hear from an amazing athlete who overcame incredible odds and get this to make his fourth U.S. Olympic team. We're also going to talk with a human performance expert about reaching our potential, and we can't wait to chat with one of the most unique centenarians alive, a world-renowned 100-year-old opera superstar who still has an amazing voice. Well, have you ever wanted to be more brave, courageous, and bold to overcome your fears and really go for it? Well, Robert Biswas Diener says you can. He's widely known as the Indiana Jones of positive psychology because his research on happiness has taken this guy to the remote corners of the world. And this is really interesting because now he's tackling the subject of courage itself. And his new book is The Courage Quotient, How Science Can Make You Braver. So let's welcome Dr. Robert Biswas Diener. How are you, Doc? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Interesting topic, courage, is. I I guess the best way to start is to define it. What exactly uh, is courage? Sure. It's a a great question. The the short answer is sort of being afraid of something and doing it anyway. Uh, Certainly fear has to be present. If, If there's no fear, then what you're doing can't, by definition, be brave. And you also can't be um, guaranteed of what the outcome of your actions are. If, if there's a guarantee of how things will turn out, again, it's not really brave because there's no risk involved. So, so being afraid, but, but sort of tackling that fear, stepping through the fear, and, and acting despite the fear. Interesting concept, as you've documented time and time again with with your previous writings. You are a very sharp guy who can spend your energy on just about anything. What is it about the science of courage that attracted you? Why did you decide to write about this? Well, uh, as you mentioned before, my, my really my research background is in happiness, and I, for you know about a decade, was really concerned with what made people happy. Um, but but the more I traveled around the world, the more I saw that that risk was part of everyday life, and and I come to I came to think of courage as sort of being the shortest route to the good life, but not always necessarily the happy life, because a lot of that risk um, is associated with kind of withstanding fear, dealing with anxiety. So in the short term, courage often means that that you're not blissfully happy in the moment, but it it leads you to take the kinds of, of calculated risks that I think give you a full life and a very, very sort of meaningful and engaged life. And, and surprisingly little within the science of positive psychology had been written on it. So, so I was eager to, to address it myself. Now, now, the book is called The Courage Quotient, which I have to admit scared me at first because <laughs> with the word quotient, I kind of figured it had math uh, involved in it. But uh, how do we test our own courage? And what, what is this courage quotient that you talk about? Sure. Well, it, it turns out that courage really is comprised of, of two sort of separable, uh, distinct processes. One, as you might imagine, the more kind of common sense one, is managing your fear. When you, when you feel fear, afraid to get on a plane, afraid of a snake, afraid of going on a first date, uh, you, you need to kind of keep that, that, that anxiety under control. And there's all sorts of techniques for managing fear. But then there's a separate process, and that's boosting your willingness to act, sort of increasing your confidence, if you will. And it, it would make sense at first blush to think of those two as, as essentially the same thing, but they're actually distinct from one another. Uh, so you, you could um, boost your willingness to act even though you're experiencing very high fear. So your courage quotient is just really the amount of fear you're experiencing and the amount of willingness to act you have, and you always need your willingness to act to be incrementally more than the fear you experience. Otherwise, you'll be paralyzed. So you interviewed 50 people whom you consider to be highly courageous. And before you tell us what you might have learned uh, from that, if there are any common denominators, quick question. Is courage always a good thing? I mean, haven't we been wired to be afraid and in many cases with good reason? 
Absolutely. I, I think fear is a gift to us. Um, fear keeps us alive. When, when you, uh, you know, when you kind of feel yourself bristle or feel cautious as you walk through a, a dark parking lot at night, I think that there's wisdom in that. Um, so, so there are certainly those people we would think of as, as overconfident or, or uh, a little um, too risk prone. Um, so there is an optimal amount of courage. Courage as a skill uh, requires a bit of wisdom. Um, and the people who are, who are um, you know, sort of foolishly risky, you know, might ultimately get weeded out of the, the gene pool. Um, but, but you also can't have so much fear that it holds you back from life. So you do kind of want to be somewhere in, in that optimal, optimal middle zone. So what kind of people were these 50 courageous people that you interviewed, and what did you discover about them? Sure. So, so I was interested in interviewing people from all walks of life because I think of courage as not just something for soldiers in war or firefighters running into a burning building, but I think of it as a very kind of democratic day-to-day concern. Um, you know, if you can imagine, you know, I think getting married is an act of courage, deciding to start a family, switching careers. So I tried to interview people from all walks of life. They included uh, polar explorers, police officers, people who had testified in, in a, a case against a violent criminal, uh, executives who had to fire people, just all sorts of people. You know, it seems that in the dawn of man, courage was a question of survival. You know, if you made a mistake, you were gone. These days, courage means facing up to a job interview. Do, do we get hung up because of our instincts? Well, it's it's interesting. I mean, uh, we experience fear as fear, and the the same sort of historical fear that might be the, uh, afraid of the saber-toothed tiger um, is really the exact same emotion um, that we experience when we're afraid of public speaking. Now, public speaking is not going to kill you, but but the sense that you might uh, make a mistake in front of people or be socially ostracized is just as painful and and just as threatening to people um, as as a saber toothed tiger might be uh, within reason, I guess. So so while fear does help us um, kind of historically to survive, it, it also can kind of work against us in in some social situations. We are speaking with Dr. Robert Beeswaz-Diener, who's written a new book called The Courage Quotient, How Science Can Make You Braver. So, uh, so, so give us some tips, Doc, if courage can actually be learned. What can you tell our listeners about developing more courage? Yeah, one of uh, my absolute favorite uh, topics, and, and I ended up writing an entire chapter of this, uh, was the idea of making mistakes. Uh, I, I tell my, my own employees, Go out and, and make mistakes. It's okay. Low stakes mistakes are great. They're learning opportunities. They're the way we get good at things. We, we uh, sort of test our abilities. And I think, um, especially among sort of the younger generation, there, there is such a drive for success and achievement that it's almost akin to, to a type of perfectionism. People just beat themselves up if, if they make even the smallest mistakes, and a fear of mistakes um, actually holds people back oftentimes from even trying. So I tell people, don't tolerate failure. Don't accept failure. Actually embrace failure. Make, make small stakes failures a, a part of your every day. Now, if you're a doctor, you don't want to amputate the wrong leg. I mean, that's kind of a high-stakes failure. Mm-hmm. But, but little mess-ups, little goofs, you know, sending a, the, the wrong email to the wrong person from time to time, that kind of blunder is something we all do. And, and we're far more capable of absorbing those types of mistakes and learning from them. So, so I think embracing the idea of failure helps boost your willingness to act. So I I guess the practical application of this in this day and age are people that have lost their jobs, uh, that are going through economic tough times, that are having relationship problems. Uh, uh, These are the kind of fears and the things that we need the most courage, you know, to to keep our families together and to face uh, problems and overcome obstacles. How do we use all of this that you're talking about to apply to those issues? Sure, absolutely. Well, I, I think that, that taking some time, stepping back and tapping your own values, uh, you know, why is it you want a job? You want to provide for your family. You want a sense of purpose. You, you want to structure your time. You want a decent income. Tapping your values can actually kind of help overcome a little bit of that egotism. I mean, we all have a little bit of egocentric bias. I mean, we, we kind of like ourselves. 
but but that liking ourselves also means that we want to keep ourselves safe, and that's what holds us back from from taking risks. But remembering that that you're connected to others, you have an obligation to others, that you value things deeply, can actually propel you to take those risks. And you wrote an entire chapter, Doc, on uh, essentially about the power of Lucky Charms. And we're not talking about the cereal here. It's uh, delicious. Uh, it is good cereal. What is the science behind that? Uh, what what power do Lucky Charms hold for us? Yeah, th- this was something that really tickled me as I researched the book. Uh, uh, one research team in Germany found that uh, in, in sort of a miniature golf game, if you told people that they were playing with a lucky golf, it actually improved their performance relative to people who are playing with a so-called you know, regular ball. And then people who brought in a, a personal lucky charm uh, from home were better at memory tasks suddenly than, than were a control group. So it turns out that, that we all are endowed with this capacity for what's called magical thinking. You know, don't step on a crack, don't spill salt. Sometimes it's superstitions. But but we have these lucky charms. You might wear a tie if you're about to give a talk that you feel is your lucky tie. Or many people have a lucky pair of underwear, a lucky pair of socks. And what these lucky charms do, these talismans essentially, is um, just kind of boost our confidence. And that helps us overcome fears we might naturally have. It's like an anxiety technique. I, I want to ask you this before we go, and we're, we're, we are coming uh, coming close to needing to do that. But are you one of those guys that says the best way to learn to swim is throw them in the water? <laughs> uh, it's definitely something I would recommend for someone else, but would never personally <laughs> want it done to me. Well, well, folks, his name is Dr. Robert Bezoise-Diener. His book is called The Courage Quotient, and it addresses something that we talk about all the time here, and that is if you want to make changes in your life, you've got to do something about it. Action is what fuels a better tomorrow, and sometimes you need courage to take that first step. It's the most difficult one. If you want to learn more about courage and, more importantly, learn how to get more courage, The Courage Quotient is a good place to start. Uh, uh, Dr. Dr. Bezois-Diener, we thank you so much for your time, and uh, uh, keep it up. We, we love reading what you write. Coming up, if you want to talk about courage, how one of the oldest world-class triathletes defied the odds to make his fourth U.S. Olympic team. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Located in West Orange County, Orlando Health's Health Central Hospital is a full-service hospital with a newly expanded ER as well as top-rated neurospine and orthopedic programs. Learn more at orlandohealth.com. And by The Legacy Life Project from Macbeth Studio, preserving family history, stories, and memories for generations to come by creating personal video biographies of your loved ones. Everyone has a story worth preserving. LegacyLifeProject.com. My guard stood hard when abstract threats to noble, to neglect. Hi, Mark Middleton, along with Bill Schaefer, and this is Growing Boulder. You know, we've been covering Hunter Kemper, America's top triathlete, since his Olympic career began back in 2000. We were actually there when he competed in Sydney in 2000, and again in Athens in 2004. He made his third Olympic team in 2008, competing in Beijing. But his chances of making a fourth Olympic team at the age of 36... Well, they didn't look good when he crashed while riding his bike at 30 miles an hour in a race. He broke his elbow, had to have 13 screws put into it, five operations, and extended IV treatments because he had an infection from that. He couldn't practice at all, couldn't compete for seven months before his one and only shot to make the 2012 Olympic team. But you know what happened? Hmm. We wouldn't be talking about (laughs) it if this didn't happen, folks. He stunned himself by beating every American to earn himself a trip to London. So what is this guy all about? What makes Hunter Kemper tick? Well, as we discovered, it's all about his family and helping others. It's one of the coldest mornings in Central Florida history, and Hunter Kemper, the greatest triathlete in U.S. history, is arriving for a quick workout. Welcome back to sunny Florida, (laughs) the sunshine state. It's about what, maybe about... uh... 32, 30, 31, 33 degrees, right around freezing right now, I think. Yeah, with wind chill, they say it's mid-20s. Mid-20s, okay. And it's 7, uh, 7, 10 right now. And I'm I'm uh, getting ready to jump in the water into the Lake Brantley pool and do a little swim session. I think it's going to be a little warmer in there. If it's not warmer in there than it is out here, 
I'm going to get out real fast. Right, let us know. It's good. It's a lot warmer uh, in here than it is out there. A three-time Olympian, Hunter lives near the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs and has returned to his hometown to compete in the Disney Half Marathon. He's been battling injury for months and wouldn't be here if he was only running for himself. But he has a higher purpose, and to understand that part of the story, you have to meet Hunter's son, Davis, who's learning to swim himself. So this is his second lesson ever, swimming lesson ever. He just turned three, so it's... It's really exciting to see him do it. Davis knows his dad's job is swimming, running, and biking, and he wants to learn them all. He already has his own bike. He rides his own bike. It's, it's a scoot bike, which is a, a pedalless bike. So it has no pedals, so he uses his legs to kind of get himself going. It's, it's, it's basically a balancing bike. I'm okay. You're okay. You're okay. Whoa. That was close. <laughs> With Davis in the water, Hunter gets in a little pool time himself, and for the next 20 minutes, both of the Kemper boys keep moving and keep their eyes on one another. After his lesson, Davis gets a hug from Mom, a former Olympic volleyball player, and a high five from Dad. It's a big day. Davis is now a triathlete. And what do you do? What can you do? I can ride my bike. You can ride your bike, yep. And what else can you do? I can run too. You can run too, and what else can you do? I can swim. You can swim now, yeah. And when you grow up, you're going to be like Daddy? <laughs> this is as good as it gets, yeah. This is uh, better than anything I've ever done. I mean, being a dad is, for me, it's something I've always wanted to do and, and wanted to have a family, and uh, Lord willing, we'll, we'll have more children. And that's why Hunter is running the Disney Half Marathon. Having a healthy son has taught him how fortunate he and his wife Val are, especially after meeting two children with AT. AT stands for ataxia telangiectasia. It's a horrible disease. It's a fatal genetic disease in children. It affects about 1,000 kids in the country, less than 1,000 kids in the country. And what it is is combining cystic fibrosis, muscular dystrophy, immune deficiency syndrome, um, leukemia and lymphoma all wrapped into one. I felt like my heart was changed and I wanted to do something. I have a platform in the sport of triathlon and uh, I wanted to try to raise awareness. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Disney Alaska. Two days later, the weather is only worse. It's 4.30 in the morning and a freezing rain greets runners who have come to Disney World to compete in the world's biggest weekend of distance running. Ski masks, plastic bags, anything and everything is used to stay warm. This is going to be while Mickey and friends entertain the crowd, Hunter arrives to run for those who can't. I got my shirt on right here, the AT Cure team, right there. We're going to have a good time. Growing bolder today, baby. Woo! Nearly 25,000 runners, 25,000 reasons for running 13.1 miles in miserable conditions. For years, Hunter has run only for himself and his country. But now he runs for a small group of children battling one of life's cruelest diseases. One hour and seven minutes later, Michigan's Chad Johnson crosses the line first. A short time later, Hunter Kemper, out of shape and running on sore legs, races in, finishing a surprising fourth overall. Hunter Kemper is in the house, one of the greatest triathletes of all time. I felt good almost pretty much into the last three miles, and the chill just kind of started to wear on you a little bit. But it's cold. It's hard to talk out here right now. But this race was not about winning. It was about supporting a desperate grassroots effort to find a cure for AT. Immediately after the race, a tired and cold Olympian is at the AT tent welcoming runners and thanking them for supporting the cause. When you have a disease in your family that's so rare and obscure um, and no one's ever heard of it, and then for our families to all hear suddenly that a guy who's a world-class athlete, uh, you know, Olympian, uh, knows what our kid's disease is and is willing to help us, it's really amazing. It means everything because it builds awareness. And, and people see that, and we've seen how our numbers have grown over the years and the attention that the charity has gotten through uh, people like uh, Hunter. He still enjoys his role as America's top triathlete, but Hunter Kemper has discovered two even more important roles, the role of father... It's better than winning any other race. ...and the role of advocate. You can't just help but wrap your arms around them and love them, and uh, when you see these kids, it gives me inspiration to run today and enjoy today and, and to get through every day. So uh, they struggle with it. I might struggle through a race, but they struggle through it day in and day out. And so uh, I'm reminded of that every time I see him. He's running three Olympics for his country. Now he wants to run in a fourth, 
for his country, but also for his family and his cause. All right, Hunter finished 17th in the Olympics in 2000. He was 9th in 2004 and 7th in 2008. His goal has always been to make the podium top three. The odds are against him, but folks, as we've learned, you can never count Hunter Kemper out. Coming up, how changing what he ate changed his whole life and how it can change yours, too. Support for Growing Boulder provided by the Center for Health and Well-Being. Coming soon in Winter Park. Wellness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. Nutrition is a hot-button topic these days, and rightly so, because watch the news. It's full of reports of food supplies tainted with pesticides or hormones and chemical additives, and we have an obesity epidemic that's fueled in large parts by the processed foods that, that fill our stores. Well, as he approached his 40th birthday, entertainment attorney Rich Roll was a, like a lot of middle-aged men. He found himself overweight, he was out of shape, didn't have any energy, and he just couldn't really live the life he wanted to. Not uncommon, but what happened next, folks, is nothing short of amazing. Now 46, Rich has totally transformed his body and his life. He is now one of the world's top ultra-distance endurance athletes and plant-based nutrition advocates. In fact, Men's Fitness Magazine has named him one of the 25 fittest guys in the world, and he made PETA's list of sexiest vegetarian celebrities. He's the author of the new bestseller, Finding Ultra, Rejecting Middle Age, Becoming One of the World's Fittest Men, and Discovering Myself. Let's find out more as we welcome Rich Roll. Hey, Rich, how are you? Hey, guys. How you doing? Thanks for having me. Well, we appreciate you taking time from your busy schedule to chat with us. And as they say, Rich, timing is everything. And from the outside, you seem to be the right guy at the right time with the right message. It certainly seems like your story, uh, your book, are resonating with many people right now. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it's... uh... You know, it's a great time to be talking about health and fitness. I've never seen uh, more awareness, interest, and openness in, in plant-based nutrition. And, um, you know, people's minds are opening up about the dangers of dairy and, and meat consumption. And so it's great to just be, you know, a small, play a small role in this uh, little movement that's going on here. And, you know, Rich, hearing your story makes a huge difference because, like, gosh, millions of us, what, you were 40 years old and... You were checking out your health, you know, doing like a personal inventory, and you were not happy with the state of health that you had. What was wrong? Well, I mean, I think I'd been, you know, I'd been living my life according to the, you know, sort of rules that most people do. You know, I had been an athlete in college, and so I knew what it was like to be fit and feel strong. And, you know, like most people who play sports, that chapter closes, and then it becomes about, you know, climbing up the corporate ladder and, you know, getting married and getting the bills paid and that mortgage and then raising kids and, you know, I was, you know, it's all good stuff for sure, uh, but, you know, during that period of time, a good, you know, 15 years, I just didn't, you know, my health and my fitness really just were not part of that equation at all. I completely overlooked them, and, you know, when you're in your 20s, you can get away with that kind of stuff for a while, but, you know, it catches up to you, and in this day and age of... Uh, processed foods and fast foods. And, you know, it's crazy that, you know, fast food is the same price it was when I was a kid, essentially. Uh, it's so cheap. It's easy and convenient to get. And, you know, when you develop a habit of eating that all the time, it's hard to break that habit. And I fell victim to that. And, you know, luckily I had a wake-up call. Uh, it was a painful one. But, you know, on the eve of my 40th birthday, I had a little bit of a health scare. I could barely make it up a flight of stairs without getting winded. And, buckled over and heart disease runs in my family and and you know I didn't want to I didn't want to have a heart attack and I wanted to feel better and be able to enjoy my children at their energy level and I realized that I needed to make a drastic change in my lifestyle habits in order to make that happen. And and drastic really is the word. How did this transformation begin? Was the foundation of a diet or exercise or, or can the two not be separated? 
Well, they're, they're certainly intrinsically linked, but I would have to say that everything began with changing my diet. It was changing my diet that paved the foundation uh, for all the fitness adventures that followed um, because I had struggled with weight, as I had mentioned, over the you know last several years, and I was about 50 pounds overweight, and I began experimenting with plant-based nutrition almost as a dare or a bet to my wife that it wouldn't work, but what I, I was very surprised to find out that within seven to ten days of cutting meat, dairy, and processed foods out of my diet, that I felt the level of vitality that my body experienced, the spike in energy levels, was insane. Like I just felt so much better. I couldn't believe that my body could, was capable of feeling that good. And my return to exercise literally initially was a response to just burning off all the added energy that I had so I could sit still. And so one thing led to another. It wasn't like I woke up and said, here's my five-year plan of how I'm going to go out and do these crazy races. It literally just sort of organically unfolded on a day-to-day basis. So, so Rich, you, you had this feedback like within a week. I, I think in your story, didn't you start out like a, as a vegetarian, but that didn't kind of work? It was only when you went vegan, you know, that, that this happened. Is that right? Sure. I mean, I gave you the thumbnail version. So the sort of the the more detailed version is that, uh, you know, in response to having that health scare, I realized that I needed to do something, you know, rather extreme. And I ended up doing a seven day fruit and vegetable juice cleanse, which was, you know, for me, for like a, you know, pretty conservative lawyer type guy. <laughs> and that was very far afield of anything I ever thought I would ever do. Um, and my wife had done one before, and she had, you know, experienced success with it, and I was willing to try something different. So I did that, and, you know, that was sort of like feeling like I was in rehab. I mean, the first couple of days, I'm buckled over on the couch, and, you know, I could barely move. But uh, by day four and five is when I felt phenomenal, and it was the first instance in which I realized how resilient the human body is. And so when that was over, of course, you have to resume eating food, and and. I wish I could say I bought a bunch of books and did a bunch of study and realized, you know, plant-based nutrition was best, but I didn't do that. I thought, well, I'll try a vegetarian diet. It seems like, you know, that's a healthier way to go than what I had been doing. And of course it was in some respects, but it's very easy to eat poorly on a vegetarian diet or a vegan diet for that matter. And it wasn't long before I'm eating, you know, Domino's pizza and French fries, which are, you know, technically vegetarian, but hardly... (laughs) hardly healthy. So, you know, I didn't lose, of course, I didn't lose any weight. I didn't feel any better. My energy level started to plummet again. And I kind of, you know, went back to that desperate point of what next. And that's when I decided to go entirely vegan and see how that would feel. So cutting out the dairy, cutting out uh, the processed foods. And that was when um, my energy levels went back up again. And they felt the way that they felt in the latter days of doing that juice cleanse. And that's when I realized that I was on something um, and began to study it a little bit more and, and learn about it um, and then build from there. And I've been doing that ever since, uh, almost six years now. We're speaking with Rich Roll, a, a former collegiate swimmer who at 40 years old found himself out of shape and overweight uh, and totally transformed himself. Uh, he's now 46, one of the fittest uh, people in the world, and uh, the author of a new book called Finding Ultra. Uh, Rich, you're, you're disproving two things. You're, you're proving that we can, in fact, reject middle age, and you're also proving that an athlete can perform on plants alone at a very high level because a lot of people don't think that to be true. Yeah, there's so the two, there's two things. Um, the first thing, rejecting middle age. I mean, certainly we're all going to die. You know, there's no getting around that. But there, we have so much more power over how we experience uh, the later years in our life. And and you know, my only hope is that my example, you know, makes people's eyes open up and and realize that you know we all have control over what we put down our throats. And if we make better choices about that, then we're going to feel better and we're going to stave off the onset of these easily avoidable congenital diseases like diabetes and heart disease and even some cancers um, in certain cases that are unnecessarily killing us, you know, by the millions. So um, certainly that's a huge part of my message. And on the athletic front, you know, you've done all these crazy endurance things, but, you know, you're, you're doing it despite your plant-based diet, just because you're talented or whatever. And I would, I would submit that it's the opposite, actually. I think that, that um, I have found that 
a plant-based diet has been the optimal uh, program for me for fueling athletic performance. Um, it's my secret weapon, although not so secret anymore with this book. And certainly, um, lots of athletes, you know, every day, more and more athletes are checking it out and experiencing great results. It's, it's all the rage in the UFC MMA world. You know, tons of these fighters are doing it. And, you know, when you get to the masculinity question of, you know, oh, well, you know, men eat meat. Well, if you ever watch an MMA fight, these guys are stone cold killers and they're feeling stronger and faster and recovering better on a vegan diet. So that's very interesting. And just the other day, uh, I found out Arian Foster, an NFL running back for the Houston Texans, is checking it out. So even, you know, guys in the NFL and guys in the NBA are um, experimenting with this and having good results. So it's exciting to watch, really exciting. Well, well, that's the point too, Rich. I think your message is not that you should go out and be an MMA fighter or an ultramarathoner. I mean, it ultimately comes down to you know uh, being honest with ourselves and finding that willpower. Some people have it and some don't, but if you don't, it's impossible to transform your life. Well, I think that uh, certainly you need to have a willingness to change, for sure. Um, but I also think that a lot of people sort of construct unnecessary roadblocks, and particularly with, with plant-based nutrition, um, you know, there's all these misconceptions. Oh, it's too expensive. Oh, it's too complicated. How am I going to prepare these dishes? And, you know, all of these are really fallacies, I've found, and I used to believe them too, but I've realized uh, that, you know, our family, our grocery bill for our family is actually less than when we, you know, I have four kids, and everything has to operate pretty you know, in a facile manner and in a sustainable manner in order to work within the construct of, you know, my very busy family life. So if it involved crazy recipes or, you know, insane items that were too expensive, we would not be able to sustain it in our own life. And we found out that our grocery bill is less and actually the dishes that we prepare are simpler because we try to prepare foods as close to their natural state and and it becomes it ends up being easier and the kids love it and it just hasn't been that difficult. And with fitness, you know, again, it goes to it goes to willingness. You know, you've got to be willing to make a change. But, you know, when I when I walk, you know, particularly through airports when I travel and I just see obese people everywhere and all there is is fast food, you know, it it my heart is heavy. You know, I think that we need some drastic changes all the way from the personal individual responsibility level all the way up to, you know, the, the highest corporate level um, about what we put in front of people uh, to expand their choices. Rich, we're going to have to leave have it there. Uh, a, yep. gr- a great message, even more importantly, a great example from Rich Roll. His book is called Finding Ultra, and you can find it at bookstores, Amazon.com, and just about everywhere. Coming up next, how to maximize your potential. That's next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by the Masson Spine Institute, where world-renowned minimally invasive techniques lead to fast recovery. The Masson Spine Institute, excellence in spinal surgery. More information at MassonSI.com. And by Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. Hi, Mark Middleton, along with Bill Schaefer, and this is Growing Boulder. And our next guest has a Ph.D. in sports psychology. She's an expert on maximizing our potential in all areas of our lives, which is why we dig her. She has worked with athletes and executives, students and teachers, men and women of all ages and all abilities. You want to know a few more cool things about her? How how about this, Mark? She is an accomplished rock climber, a yoga practitioner, long-distance swimmer who has taught courses for Outward Bound in Colorado, an incredible organization, and one time she bicycled solo. You ready for this? 2,700 miles from Nova Scotia to Florida and recently competed a 220-mile trek in the Sierra Mountains of California. This is an extraordinary person indeed, Dr. Virginia Savage. How are you, doctor? 
I'm fine, thank you. Boy, not only do you talk the talk, but you sure walk the walk. You are an expert on human performance, and we all want to be better at that. What is it? What makes us great in sports or, or even in life in general? What characteristics or qualities do we need, and are they possible to develop? Well, I believe that anybody can do the things that I've done or anybody else has done. It just takes a passion for it. And, uh, you know, I think that our limitations are mostly in our own heads, you know, about what we think we can't do. And so over the course of my life, I've learned on a personal level, especially from rock climbing, that we tend to see the limitations and uh, not go beyond those because we think that that's all we can do. And, uh, of course, you know, when you mentioned that I had completed the 230-mile uh, trek in, uh, on the John Muir Trail last summer, that was about the first thing that I've done in most of my life that I didn't complete. I only walked 100 miles of it. but. Mm. It was also a transformative experience, and I don't—I don't think that it's the achievement itself of things, but it's in the—it's in the effort that we put forth to believe that we can, and we—and we take risks and live our life with courage. So, to me, there are only two choices, and the, the choice is either fear or courage, and and sometimes fear is uh, looks like courage because we're trying to prove something. So. Mm-hmm. It's it's sort of a, a a beautiful thing, sports psychology, because it's just how we live our lives. At least that's what I believe. Yeah, a, a fascinating subject. Uh, your life does, uh, Doctor Savage, appear to be one adventure after another, and, and as you say, that's by design. Tell us a little bit about your personal philosophy on decade birthdays. What have you done, yeah. and, and why do you do it? Well, that's one of my favorite topics because it it didn't really. It sort of happened by default. Um, when I was 30, I had two daughters, and uh, we did, I was married at 16, but so after 14 years of marriage, we divorced, and uh, I wanted to uh, spread my wings, our ring, wings a little bit, and we were living in Orlando, and I moved with my two daughters to Boulder, Colorado, and uh and it was a scary thing, but I never doubted that it was the right thing to do. And it wasn't easy. We had lots of uh, challenges, but it taught me some things. And I, that was there that I met uh, some rock climbers and thought, this is really a great thing to do. And it was the first thing in my life that I had done that I thought I was really good at. So I was out there <clears throat> trying to prove how great I was and... Uh, and after about six months of climbing, I was leading a climb that was at my limit, and I fell 60 feet and landed on my knees and uh, broke my legs or broke one leg in more than 100 places. And so I was in the hospital for two months. With and I, my mom came out and took care of my daughters, and you know that I was given all these prophecies of doom by the doctors. And I just, you know, after two months in the hospital. I decided this is that is not going to be my fate, and that's when I got into yoga, and into you know kind of pushing myself and and being determined. And I realized that if I can recover from that, then I can do just about anything. And it took two years to recover, and I got back into climbing, and it was I was really scared because, you know, of my accident, but I learned something about moving through fear, and it's not about not being afraid, it's learning how to move through it, so it sort of reflected everything else, so anyway, you asked about the decade birthdays, that that big change happened when I was 30, and then um, when I was 38, um, my both my daughters were old enough, they had left home, and that's when I did my bike ride from Nova Scotia to Florida. And so I thought, well, you know, to me, every decade, we spend so much time thinking about, oh, my gosh, now I'm 40, now I'm 50. But what does that really mean? It, to me, it, I think that on decade birthdays, we have a whole, here's my philosophy, we have a whole year to do something outrageous, to wake ourselves up, to remind ourselves that, you know, we are still able to uh, take risks, to do something adventurous, 
to find out, you know, who we really are, move through our identity crisis or whatever it is. So when I turned 40, I I was working for Outward Bound, but I left and uh, went to the Virgin Islands and worked on a sailboat for eight months and then came back and worked a 100-day course. And after that, I decided, you know, I need a, a focus. So I went back to school in Utah to get my Ph.D., and after I finished that, um, well, actually, right after I finished that, I was held hostage in a library um, for five hours. And at the end, there was this big shootout. And that kind of woke me up. <laughs> like, So all the hostages survived, and uh, the gunman was killed. But I just sort of like felt like, God, you know, it, you can just walk into a library without... Yeah, expecting anything to happen and things happen in your life you didn't plan on it but you can live through it amazingly enough so just go out there and get it so i took a job with prescott college i turned 50 and i had the chance to float the grand canyon so that's what i did for my 50th and you know virginia it's amazing what you can do if you do not let your limitations limit what you are. I think we put them on ourselves and well, we become we, yeah. we become victims of our own limitations. Listen, her website is savageperformance.net. She is the amazing, the inspiring Virginia Savage. See from a flat you do one little Coming up, another rock star of aging. In fact, one of the most unusual and famous centenarians in the world. She's next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... The UCF College of Medicine, where physicians, scientists, and teachers are discovering innovative solutions for today's medical challenges and bringing them to you. Learn more about the college's physician practice at ucfhealth.com. Subscribe to Growing Boulder Magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingbolder.com slash subscribe. The following interview was recorded before the passing of our guest. This is Growing Boulder. I'm Mark Middleton with Bill Schaefer. And folks, how about that singing? Our next guest is a true rock star of aging and an opera star to boot. In fact, she is an internationally renowned opera superstar. A little bit about her, folks. She has made more than 40 films in five languages. And she's played on Broadway, off Broadway, and in most of the theaters of Europe. And she is still going strong today, singing, recording, performing at the age of 100 years old. Wow. Let's welcome Marta Egerth. Hi, Marta. Hi. How are you? You know what? I never in my life thought that I would say hello to a 100-year-old and hear such energy and vitality and passion come back at me. (laughs) Well, I tell you something. It all depends what kind of a human being you are, you know? And how did you live that long? How? How did I live that long? I never even knew anybody that old. But I tell you something. I never took anything for granted. I was grateful for everything in life. And maybe that's it. Because I realized at a very early, <clears throat> early age that life is precious. Wow. A hundred years old and still singing. How have you kept your voice in shape that long? (laughs) Because I never give it up. Except now I'm hoarse. It's in in such good shape you can't talk. Yeah, I have a little cold. That doesn't matter. You can't catch my cold. (laughs) (laughs) I tell you, I never gave it up. I always kept the voice, as they say, alive. Wow. And during alive, I mean 
you exercise your program. As a matter of fact, I'm going to tell you something. I just started last week to start a new program for me with totally new songs, new melodies, new little opera things. Yes, I did, because life goes on, and I don't want to be bypassed. Uh-huh. As long as I live, I'm interested. I'm interested in life. I'm interested what will happen to the world. I read, for example, every single day the New York Times from A to Z. <laughs> I'm interested. That's the whole secret of it, to be interested in other people, in life, in how the world develops. Yes, maybe that's what it is. I don't know. Well, Marta, let's pause for just a second and let folks listen to you again. Uh, folks, this is Marta Egerth, recorded 10 years ago at the age of 90. It can change like that Due to one little word Married See a palace rise From a Marta, that is beautiful There may not be another person in history Who has been able to Able to express her art In yeah. her like you have in your 90s and 100s. It's simply amazing. It is. You know, I am astonished myself. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I don't know. Maybe it's good genes, you know? You talked a minute ago, Marta, about being interested in things. Well, now yeah. I want to turn the tables. We are interested in somebody who is 100 years old, living alone, and still performing, you are starting to get noticed again. What do yeah. you What do you think about all this attention that you've been getting now that you're 100? Well, I tell you, I'm really very surprised, but also very honored that so many people still remember me from Europe. Oh, my goodness, how long ago, you know? And all my films in various languages... And uh, yes, and uh, that it kept me, kept me up. Yes, this is it. Of course, my wonderful, wonderful, adorable husband. Mm. He was the same thing, but his health was not the same. My health so far was okay, but I also had a bypass surgery, and it doesn't. It didn't make me uh, weaker or. or in the contrary, I feel very good. <laughs> mm. Hey, folks, let's quickly connect some of the dots that Marta just mentioned. She made uh, 40 films in five languages. In the 40s, she was in Hollywood. She made movies with Judy Garland and Gene Kelly, and she mentioned her husband. She married a very handsome Polish tenor by the name of Jan Kaipera, and they were the love couple in Europe for decades. They were the Brad and Angelina of their day, touring together and making films, international superstars. Uh, Marta, is it important to you to know that you're such an, an impressive role model now and that you are so inspirational to others? Well, I hope so. I do my best to be a good example, you know, because that's very important to be a good example, an honestly good example, you know. There is so much in this world today, unfortunately, so much uh, not nice things, you know. I don't want to have anything to do with it. I just go my clear way. And that's all. And that's what I want to leave to my wonderful sons. I have two wonderful, wonderful sons. And what else is life? That's my life. That's my life to give young people a hope, a good hope. Not everything is bad in this world. Oh, no, there are wonderful things. Marvelous things in this world, much better than years ago. Look alone in medicine, 
how much improved it is and how much new things are which are good. Not everything bad. No, 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 no. Everything, I think, is good. For me, it's very good. And one of the most wonderful things we have in the world today is you, Marta Eggert, at 100 years old, inspiring the rest of us to live full and purposeful lives. International opera superstar. We thank you so much, Marta, and all the best of health. You know, folks, our wish here is always the same. We hope that our guests somehow connect with you in a way that inspires you to keep going, to chase your dreams, to get off the couch and get into life. Man, you're right, Mark, because if there's one thing that we've learned every single week is this, anyone can live an extraordinary life, but not by accident. You've got to take action. You have to improve your fitness. You have to expose yourself to new activities and new people. Find something you enjoy, and chances are you'll begin to find yourself. And, of course, we're here to help any way we can, not only on Growing Boulder Radio, but also Growing Boulder TV, GrowingBoulder.com, and now the new Growing Boulder magazine. And if you haven't already, please like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, where we'll keep you up to date on all things Growing Boulder. See you next time. Growing Boulder is a production of Boulder Broadcasting, all rights reserved. This program was recorded live at the studios of WMFE Orlando. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Jackie Carlin, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producer is Katie Widrick. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member is you. Remember, when it comes to growing bolder, it's not about age. It's about attitude. Stand.